Yeah. Amen. Amen. Let's give another round of applause to the Lord. Come on. Awesome. Well, you guys can grab a seat and uh, get your Bibles out. Uh, it is good, good, good to be back um, in the pulpit this morning. Um, for those of you that don't know, um, I was in church last week with uh, a Doug in town um, to preach, but previous to that, I was on a um, four-week uh, just sabbatical, a real time to kind of get away, a time to kind of restore my own soul uh, to really just connect with uh, my wife and our family. And then um, for uh, the whole entire time, I was spending time uh, really praying and processing and spending some time working on some projects uh, for our church as we move forward. And uh, while I was gone, it was so great to have um, just some of our staff and Doug last week just leading us um, in the word. And, you know, I I'm just excited. I'm, I'm so thankful for... Um, for just that time away. I'm so thankful for our elders' commitment um, uh, for me to have that time at different seasons. And um, here's uh, the best summary of sort of what God was teaching me during that time is uh, first and foremost, um, I love Jesus more than ever. Um, my, my passion for him has not diminished in any way. Uh, it is growing in so many different ways, uh, more deeply entrenched in the nature and the character of who God is. Um, I love my wife uh, now of 21 years and my kids and I love this church, but you will always um, come in fourth, okay? Sorry, can't get higher than that. And, um, but, but also I was really excited to come back. I was really excited to be back. I'm excited for what God has ahead for our church. And uh, you know, seeing this room full of people, now two services is, um, I don't know what all that God's doing, but there are some things that I know that God is doing that I'm really excited to be a part of and to lead forward. And so, um, but most important this week is all, we're gonna talk and, and some of those things we're gonna talk more about in the coming weeks as we process through it with our staff and with our elders and our leadership team at multiple levels in our church. Um, but, but this morning, uh, we're back in the book of Acts and uh, continuing to move. I promise you, we will finish Acts in 2021, okay? Unless Jesus returns and I'll happily be like, you know what, I'm good, I'm good. So this morning though, um, get your Bibles open to Acts chapter 17. Let me pray uh, for us as you turn there. God, as we are turning uh, to your word, we're asking that uh, this would be not just an encounter with words on a page, but encounter, uh, an encounter with the living God. Uh, one who loves us, one who through the power of his spirit wants to lead us, direct us, um, convict us, and I pray that you would have full reign over the hearts this morning. And for some this morning, uh, God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, to others, that you would convict them, and most of all, God, that we would celebrate your goodness to us. So we trust you in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Um, in the summer of 2014, Amy and I had this a really awesome opportunity um, to go on an international mission trip. And we traveled to Kuala Lumpur, which is the largest city in the a Muslim country of Malaysia. And we were there uh, to support an international church, which means it was a church in Kuala Lumpur that spoke English, but had a variety of cultures in that church. And while we were there, uh, we had the opportunity to uh, visit some of the 
uh, different sites around Kuala Lumpur, which was unbelievable being in another whole continent, a whole different culture. And when we were there, one of the days we, we visited this Hindu shrine called the Batu Caves. And outside of the shrine is this towering um, statue, a 140-foot statue of Lord Murugan, the Hindu god of war. And this is a picture of idolatry in other contexts. This idol formed by human hands to represent belief in false gods, in lesser gods. It's easy, though, to see an idol like this and think, that's crazy. I can't believe that people built that, first of all. And then that there's, a, there's an aspect of worship towards this that some people express. Now, it would be a mistake, though, to think that this subject of idols is just in places out there and not in places right here. That'd be the mistake we could make. It's easy when we're reading scripture to see some things and be like, oh man, I can't believe that culture believed it and not sit long enough in it to ask ourselves the question, does it exist in our culture and if so, how? And that's gonna be the subject that we're gonna be looking at, this subject of idolatry. It's the center of this next passage and it provokes Paul towards what we're gonna hear about next week. So first, Acts 17, 16 through 23, that's what we have in front of us this morning. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so Paul's in Athens, let me just um, try to get us on the same page here. Um, sometimes when you read cities in the Old Testament or New Testament, the, the current city in our world today is something totally different. It's named different, we might even be confused about the location. Um, this is not one of those times. Athens, Greece, then, is the same location, same name, as Athens, Greece, today. And in Athens, um, this was a city that at that time uh, existed within the bigger Roman Empire, but this city had a tremendous amount of freedom because of the nature of their community and because of the way that they led. They were very under the Roman Empire, but were given a tremendous amount of freedom. Um, in Athens, uh, some of the names of like famous philosophers that came from Athens would be names like Socrates and Plato. Athens would be similar to one of today's like great university cities, like a place like Boston where you've got Harvard and Yale and so many other prestigious universities. And one of the things that marked first century Athens, first off, like we're gonna about to see, was mass idolatry. They worshiped anything and everything and connected gods to those things and sought that out. In addition, they also were noted for, um, they always wanted to increase knowledge. They were just like, I just wanna know more, I wanna know more, I wanna know more, and they would search that out and talk about ideas, and the ideas were very public and where everyone could converse and observe and hear and listen. That's what marked the Athenians, and then they were obsessed with the latest ideas. Whatever the newest thing was, they were like, oh, I want to learn more. Not too unfamiliar with another culture I'm pretty familiar with. And so what happens here is, look what it says in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, Paul never waits in vacations. Like, Paul's waiting and looking for opportunities for the gospel. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout person, so he goes to where he normally goes. And then in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So, so now Paul's in the marketplace where normally we think about the marketplace as a place to exchange goods and services, which was true. The marketplace was like that in ancient Athens. But in addition, in Athens particularly, they would have a places in the marketplace where people would stand up and they would, they would share ideas and somebody would share an idea and then somebody else would sort of like counter them. It might be a debate or it might be a presentation, but this would happen all the time in Athens because of their love for new ideas and because they couldn't share it you know, through Facebook or YouTube, this was their best option. And so, so this was happening all the time in Athens. And Paul's spirit is provoked by this. Why? He's provoked by it because of the fact that he's looking out and going, they're giving themselves in worship to all of these gods, not the one true God. And so he reasons in the synagogues, and then look what happens next. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Like, that's not very nice. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So now he gets confronted by these, um, these two groups of thinkers. First was the Epicureans. Epicureans believed that God had nothing to do with the human world. Their goal was just to find happiness on your own. Pleasure and happiness are the highest goods. Avoid pain. I mean, that's nothing like our culture today. Or the Stoics. The Stoics were pantheists. They saw God and and. and, and like human and divine united together everywhere. They valued reason, self-sufficiency, and discipline to get what they wanted. Again, seems frighteningly similar. And they accused Paul of being a babbler. So what does that mean when they accuse him of being a babbler? Well, Paul's talking to them about Jesus and the resurrection. It, wasn't, it was something new to their ears, but it wasn't something that was new to Paul. Paul didn't come up with it, and that was a derogatory term to basically say, you got that from someone else. You're regurgitating something else. This isn't new, but it's new to us. Then watch, verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which would have been a gathering of almost like the government of Athens, all of these really uh, people that were, were always talking about all these new ideas. And look, look what they say. May, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's what they did all the time. 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, and I love this, he's, I love how he builds a bridge here before he brings the gospel and talks about Jesus. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Can we just be really clear here and, um, and observe that Paul could start with the same exact intro in West Michigan? Many different places around our nation, even around the world. I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this 
I proclaim to you. And we're gonna stop there this week because this is a two-part message. There is no way with what plays out in this entire passage that I could do it justice in one sermon. And so we wanna ask in this message, why was Paul provoked by idols? And is that applicable to our lives? And then next week, we're gonna talk about this, this, this sermon that Paul gives because it proclaims the glory and the goodness of the God that we worship in awesome depth. And so this week, we wanna talk about idols. We're talking about the subject of idolatry. And so uh, the big move for us this morning is this, confront idols, confront idols. And what I want us to see is, is that when you understand idolatry biblically, you're gonna understand both why Paul was provoked and I believe you're gonna be challenged uh, through the work of God's word to be provoked by idols in your own life and in our world. Because um, we could ask the question, like I hope you're asking, where are idols present in our culture? And should we be provoked by idols like Paul is? And why is it important to confront idols? Well, let me give you some reasons. You see them right here in the text. First, confront idols because our world is full of them. Our world is full of them. Paul saw, he walked into the city, he saw that it was full of idols, and he was, he was provoked, he was stirred up by this. Idolatry, not just here does it provoke Paul, but he speaks really clear about it in other scriptures. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, flee from idolatry. In Galatians 5, Paul lists idolatry as a work of the flesh, something that's opposed to the work of the Spirit. Peter mentions idolatry as something that Gentiles want to do, they long to do, they desire to do it in 1 Peter 4. God clearly opposes idolatry. And one of the easiest ways when you hear the word idolatry you, and, you, and you see something like the statue from Kuala Lumpur, you might be like, idolatry, like, does, do, we even, do we even talk about idolatry in our, in our culture? Well, um, let's just be reminded um, first that uh, there's been a show that's run for over 15 seasons in our uh, nation called American Idol. Okay? And American Idol, uh, you know, doesn't involve erecting statues that are 140 feet, but I promise you that if you follow that show at all, you know there's some people that follow American Idol a bit like worship. Like they follow that person and they love that person and every time they sing, they like get on their phone and they vote for them and, and, and these people emerge as these famous people out of a show. Now, I promise you, idolatry is more pervasive than what plays out in American Idol, way more dangerously pervasive than just that. So let's start with the definition. A book that I've promoted again and again, it's probably the best a biblically rich book on the subject of idolatry is a Brad a Big Knees book, Gospel Treason, and here's his definition, which I just cannot improve upon. It's this. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So what could be an idol in your life? Anything. That's why we're in such trouble, because absolutely anything can become an idol. Anything can become an idol. John Calvin, how many hundred years ago, said that the human heart is an idol factory. Just producing them, just all the time, idols. Idols are literally anything 
that we give our praise, affection, attention, time, focus, or devotion to above God, instead of God, or as a consistent distraction from God. Even good things like uh, your marriage, your kids, church, money, things that God has blessed and has an appropriate place for can become idols because something becomes an idol when it starts to rule our lives more than God. It's a subtle move, but a dangerous one. Anything can become an idol. Brian Carter, a pastor I've learned some about, he gives some helpful categories for idols. He, um, he gives two broad categories. Um, the two broad categories are um, surface idols and deep idols. Surface idols and deep idols. Surface idols identify themselves obviously to everyone. If you um, are regularly under the control of a substance, that has become an idol. It's something that God does not want for your life, but it's something that you're submitting to because of the pleasure and the comfort that it gives you. And so what it has become is a ruling thing because it's causing you to do things that you know God would not want, and so it's become an idol. If somebody abandons their a marriage when there's a desire to make things right and there's an, a move away for not biblical reasons, then in that, and there's a move to, 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 to cheat on them with another person, that person has become an idol because you've prized them above what God would want for your marriage. Idol, surface idols, obvious. Deep idols are different. They're oftentimes underneath the surface idols, but we don't talk about them very well oftentimes in the church. And um, Brian Carter identifies three of them um, that are the most significant, and they're these ones. Control, significance, and comfort. So as we're processing through thinking about our life full of idols, let's, just, let's, let's, let's process through these a little bit to so make sure we understand them. Control. With control, the desire that I have for my heart is, is I wanna have certainty or I wanna dominate. And the way this is seen in our lives is relentless pursuit of power or also a relentless pursuit of security. Security causes us to control. And some of you are like, oh, wow, yeah, true. <laughs> and so, so that's the first one, control. The next one, significance. Look at this one. Um, the desire of the heart is to receive affirmation or to be made, uh, made to feel important. If you criticize a person who's got an idol of significance, watch out. Uh, it's seen in an overwhelming need for approval and love or an inordinate desire for recognition. Then comfort. Desire is pleasure and ease. It's seen in avoiding stress and responsibility or constant consumption. So, so please, church, don't, don't just see the idols that Paul is observing in Athens and be like, man, that culture was messed up. Because it's still present in our culture today. It's not just what God clearly forbids that can become an idol. It's even good things can become idolatrous things when they become ruling things. Good things can become idolatrous things when they become ruling things. And suddenly that is ruling your life, not Jesus Christ. If anything starts to rule my heart more than my relationship with Jesus Christ, something is fundamentally wrong. My kids are a gift from God, but if I try to control their lives, find my significance through them, 
or use them for my comfort, they can become idols. Watch parents when they transition to empty nests and they're like, don't know what to do with my life. I've lost all purpose. Idol revealed. Idol revealed. Confront idols because your world is full of them. We should be provoked by this. We should be provoked by this. Second, confront idols because they never fully satisfy. Confront idols because they never fully satisfy. Notice in the passage that they brought Paul to the Areopagus because they want to hear about this new teaching and they, they say, we want to know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You bring some strange things to our ears. And then almost, it, it doesn't continue. It, in verse uh, 21, it makes this broad statement about the whole entire culture. And it says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Well, what's, what's happening here? What's happening here gives us a clue about the reality of idolatry. It never fully satisfies. Why do they have to keep going on to something new? They're, they're, they're obsessed with novelty. They're obsessed with novelty. The next new thing, the next thing that might tickle their ears or capture their attention or bring some sense of satisfaction. And, and idols never truly satisfy the longing of the human heart, never. See, idols catch their interest. They satisfy them enough to grab their attention, satisfied enough to draw them in, uh, enough to meet some lack in their life. They satisfy enough to capture them, but they were never fully satisfied. And they're always moving on to the next new thing. And if you think that our culture is not in any way familiar to the culture in Athens, just look in your garage or your basement or your storage facility. Ouch, I know. And we look there and we go, and had my attention, satisfied some need, maybe for comfort, maybe for significance, then on to the next thing, and on to the next thing, and on to the next thing. Idols never fully satisfy. And before long, our world is covered with the landscape of our idols. And idols have to change all the time because they never fully satisfy. Idol worshipers are always drawn to something new. That was the reality in the culture of Athens and it's the same reality in our culture today. Let, let me just illustrate for a second because I want to make sure that we understand this clearly because there's, there's, in some of the obvious things, it's really easy to determine, but in some of the things that good things can become ruling things, I just want to make sure we understand so that we can see it in our own lives because I believe that this word should lead us to the place where we're provoked a bit about it, like Paul was. My, my, my job as a pastor, if, if it becomes an idolatrous thing, what happens is, is my security and my identity shifts. So if my security, my security and my identity rightly should be fully and completely in Jesus Christ, but if it shifts, over to my, my job as a pastor, um, what happens then is I am so needing for satisfaction, the approval of people. And then if I get any negative feedback, man, I am on the ground, frustrated, depressed, broken by that. So often if you stand in a place 
If I stood in a place where that was idolatry, where I was getting my security and my significance from that, man, I would be so people-pleasing in the way that I did the, uh, everything I do and the way I lead the church. I'd be trying to make everyone happy, and, and it would be exhausting. And yeah, there'd be these moments of satisfaction. Oh, I love to hear this encouragement. But, but when, I am, when, I, when I'm doing what God's called me to do, and my security and my significance and my identity is resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I, it, is, it is insanely satisfying to do the thing that God's called me to. Church, that's the same for you and your job, whatever that might be. It's the same temptation can, can lead you to a place where you are finding your significance in that. It's the same thing in my marriage. Let's play it out there. If, if my marriage is lived in a place where my security and significance is in Jesus Christ, then the overflow of that is a blessing and a guidance to my marriage. But if my marriage becomes idolatrous, now what happens is, is I'm trying to find my security and significance in my wife and in our marriage. So it's really satisfying when it's going well. It's like, I'm so in love with you, it's going great. And then conflict happens, inside or outside, and now the whole thing feels like it's going down. If my identity and my significance is connected to my marriage. In addition, when people do this, you put so much pressure on your spouse. Because you're wanting them to be Jesus. You're wanting to get from them something that only Jesus can rightly bring. And even if they try to do it, it's not going to fully satisfy you. Such a key lesson in marriage. When you're rooted in Jesus Christ and your identity's there, I can overflow with service to my wife. I can walk through difficult seasons going, no, our identity is in Jesus Christ. And God's called us to something awesome in our marriage and we're strengthened not because she's strong or I'm strong. We know that's not the case. We're strong because he is strong. And that's a fully satisfying place to live. And I promise you, church, there are thousands of couples sitting in churches week after week after week that their marriage is right over here. It is not over there. That is a place of revival when God starts to work in that way and that comes when we identify the reality of idolatry. And so we've got to understand this. This is that, that reality in my marriage is the same for you in, in all sorts of different relationships in your life. Idols deceive because they provide some sense of satisfaction. Idols play, they play to the deep desires of the human heart, don't they? Whether it's your job or, or your spouse or your kids or all other sort of things that God's given us to, to steward rightly, when they start to provide a sense of control or significance or comfort, like we talked about in the last point, it creates the satisfaction where something can become an idol that God didn't want to be an idol. God wants nothing to compete with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so some of those things are so deceptive because they actually draw us in. It's kind of like the classic drug high. It feels good, but it never fully satisfies. And you just want more of the idol but it's never going to meet the need of your heart, only in Jesus Christ. And so we confront idols because they never fully satisfy. Then finally this, we confront idols because they give an incomplete knowledge of God. They give an incomplete knowledge of God. So in this, in this last little passage, 
Paul's now standing in front of the Areopagus. He's got all of these people listening to him. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so I'm going to draw some of what we're going to talk about next week out because I don't want to leave you with no hope. I don't want to leave you confronted with idols and not some sense of direction and hope from God's word. But one of the fundamental reasons you see here why Paul is provoked is because he's looking at the litany of idols around their world and he's going, these are incomplete. They're not complete. And he's like, I know the true God. And, and, and the, I want to get the picture of this God in front of you because he's gonna solve all, he can, he can solve all of your longings. He can, solve, so he can simplify your world full of idols and give you one God to worship and to revere and to have awe for. And he sees what idol worship does, that there's lots of reverence, there's lots of worship, but missing the completeness found only in the God of the Bible. The true God forbids worship of all other idols, the, 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 the God of the Bible, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, is the most loving statement in God's word because he knows, God knows that in his character is everything that our human heart longs for. And so he's like, stop the idolatry. Confront idols. Turn your attention in every part of your life back to me. But the problem is, is that we live in a world that oftentimes is so religious and so everything is right in your life when the one true God revealed in Scripture through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is ruling over every part of your life. But when you make God just one part of many idols, that's a problem. That's what religion does. So here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. Um, what, what you have here is you have me at the center and you have all of these other idols around your life, and God is just one of many idols, one of many priorities. And that God is ambiguous. It can look like different things to different people, but sometimes, honestly, in the church, we talk about God like he's something just novel that you can add to your portfolio of priorities. It's like, yeah, I'm going to add God in. Seems kind of cool. He's got some good things to say. He might help me in my job or my marriage. So I'm just going to add God in, and he's going to be one of many priorities. But God says, you shall have no other gods before me, and, and that's in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus starts to talk about discipleship, maybe some of you remember some of the radical things that Jesus said about discipleship. At one point in the Gospels, he says, if you, will, if you will not renounce all that you have and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. In, 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 the, same, in the same Gospels, he also says, using the word hate as a reference to priority, he says, if you will not hate your father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister and yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. What? Because what he's saying is, he's saying this is not discipleship. 
This is not what it means to put your faith in Christ. This is the right picture. The correct picture is that God has authority over every part of my life because the most loving thing for him to do is to ask for, make clear, and call us to follow him in everything because we're complete in him and him alone. And then once I have myself positioned with God as my ultimate authority, now God's the one that informs every one of those other areas of my life. I could sit with anybody. We could do a series on any one of those five and have so many different times in our church to say, God has a word about money. God has a word about how you work. God has a word about your involvement in church and family and marriage. And so they're not one of many priorities. They are all under the one priority. And everything becomes right in your life and complete when you understand that. If Jesus is not over everything, but just one of many things, then something is wrong. And when that begins to play out in your life and when you begin to observe that, there should be alarms going on, on in your heart and spirit just like Paul's spirit was provoked by idols. That's the idol alarm. That's like, um, we got a problem. We got a problem. We got, we got some degree of idol playing out in my life. And Jesus was clear on this. He's never going to be satisfied. He's never going to rightly be God over your life if he's just one person on the list of priorities. He must be the priority. And, and so I want to encourage you that, that what he offers you through his word and in relationship with him is a revelation that we're gonna unpack in glorious depth next week. And we're gonna see again, like we have so many times in our church, the awesome reality of Christ's character and what he offers to us. No one wants to be ruled by things that are incomplete. I don't want that. If somebody's like, hey, I got something really great, it's gonna satisfy you, but it's gonna leave you dissatisfied and it's gonna be painfully incomplete. Oh sure, give it to me. Guys, we do it every day. We do it every day. Our world just tempts us constantly with that. That's the message, that's the message, again and again and again, in ways that we see really clearly and in ways that we don't. And I feel it, and I hope you feel it, this sense of being provoked like Paul was. Confront idols because they give an incomplete knowledge of God. Confront idols because your world is full of them, because they never fully satisfy, and because they give an incomplete knowledge of God. So, as I close, what I want to do is I want to help us this week, and we're going to more fully understand this next week, but I got to get us started on this um, because I want to pastor us and even lead my own heart as I've studied this is, how do we confront idols? What does that look like? What's the best picture of that? Should I just be sitting there like on like some idol hunt in my life? Like somebody help me. I think there's some idols in my life. And should we have this great degree of anxiety about it or consternation? Is, is that what Paul is having here? What should that look like? And so I, I, wanna, I wanna kinda paint a picture that I think will help us understand. Um, I'm gonna start in sort of a, a crazy illustration. How many of you have been to Chuck E. Cheese? Okay, raise your hand. Um, that place is one of my least favorite places on the face of the earth, okay? Let's just be really clear. I know, sorry if you guys love Chuck E. Cheese. Um, all the lights, the, like, that's the sweaty and screaming kids, the obsession over the tickets, like, oh, look, I got a million tickets, and now I get a Tootsie Roll. Like, 
I'm not sure this was worth it. Like, just really not sure. And so it's not my favorite place, but there's a game that I've played at Chuck E. Cheese in one of those unfortunate times when I'm there with one of my kids or at some birthday party where I really want to help the parent come up with a better birthday party idea. Um, and, uh, and I'm there, and I'll play this game called Whack-A-Mole. You guys played that game, right? Whack-a-mole. And if, you're, if, you're, um, if you've played this game, it's got the score, you know, and how many points you need to get your pointless tickets. And then in, in, in the game's got these nine holes and you got this like mallet that you, that you have and it's, you know, it's connected to the game. And when the game starts, you put your little coin in, uh, these little moles start popping up. And when they pop up above the surface, you got to hammer them with the, with the mallet, right? How quick you are you know, is whether you get a Tootsie Roll or not. And so, um, so, so Whack-A-Mole's uh, a, a game. You see it a lot of these uh, Chuck E. Cheeses. And so um, I want to step back from that illustration for a second, and I, I want to I paint a picture that is uh, really clear to me. The mallet, when it comes to confronting idols, is the glory and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It is firm. It is strong. It is, it is both a weapon and a defense. And it is something that is prepared in such a way that you can take hold of it. The taking hold of the supremacy of Christ, that's an act of faith. It's what we do as the followers of Christ. It is the basis for our access to God. It is how we live out our faith. It is how we engage our relationship with God. Our obedience is a move of faith, and God in that empowers us in ways that we can't even understand because it's by his grace. And we grab hold of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and when we understand the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ, man, we want to take hold of it with all of our might. And then we look out at the landscape when our heart is gripped around this. We look out at the landscape of our life and if something starts to emerge that threatens the goodness and the majesty of Jesus Christ, our response is provoked in such a way that in faith we're just like, no, not in my life anymore. And, and so part of our faith, when we understand idolatry right, we understand that our heart is an idol factory. We need to see that the walk of faith, walking by the Spirit, is one perpetual game of like whack an idol. And, 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 there's, and there's a reality of that, that that we can smile about because of the Chuck E. Cheese illustration, but when we know what is threatened when we reach out to grab hold of an idol, our hands move off of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and we grab hold of something that is never going to fully satisfy us. And the temptation of the enemy in the flesh is to draw our hands away, but when our hands are placed fully on the supremacy and the goodness of Jesus Christ at every place, every degree, in every aspect of your life that God wants, that he believes is good and honorable, any part that he's called you to steward, he's like, grab hold of Jesus and I will lead you to that place in strength and security. And then when anything starts to pop up, it's like, bam, I don't want any part of that because of how good it is to grab hold of Jesus. And so as we close today, I want just to give us an opportunity to respond. So you just bow your heads and, uh, and just prepare yourself. I'm going to pray over us right now, and um, what I want to do is I just want you to consider, God, where might um, you be leading me through the work of your Spirit through this Word this morning?
Where are you leading me? What are you revealing to me about the subject of idols? God, is there, um, be asking the Lord right now, God, is there a, a place in my life where, where you're wanting to reveal something that has started to become idolatrous or maybe something in my life that I know is an idol? Maybe something that's on the surface, maybe something that's more deeply ingrained in my heart. And so let me just pray over us in regards to that. God, I just ask in my life and in the life of these friends and saints that, that you would help us to see that our world is full of idols. God, I believe that that so much of change, so much of sanctification being transformed by the gospel is identifying the idols of the heart. So God, I'm asking that you would convict right now. I'm, I'm asking that the move would not be to try to defeat the idol in our own strength. I pray that we wouldn't see that we need to just uh, be angry or or, 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 or just provoked, but I, I pray, God, that our being provoked would lead to our hands returning back to, and when our hands are grabbing hold of the glory and the power and the majesty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we don't have anything left to grab hold of idols. Drill that picture into our hearts, God. Let repentance lead us to faith. Let our hearts and our minds be enamored with the person of Jesus Christ so that idolatry would just fall in our lives. It would be completely neutralized, that it couldn't even emerge up into our life without a hand ready to grab hold of it. But keep our hands, God, firmly gripped around your promises and your power and your goodness to us. Thank you, God, that you never fail. Thank you that you are one God, that our world does not have to be full of the idols. God, thank you that you fully satisfy us and fully satisfy me, God. And I thank you that you gave us a complete picture of you in sending your son Jesus into our world. For that, we are eternally grateful. So stir us up, provoke us, God, but help us to rightfully confront idols in our lives first. We thank you, God. Purify our passion for you. Get us on a stable place where our identity is firmly and our security is firmly implanted in all that you are. Thank you, God.